So we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, um, and and the passage we come to in this section, Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 30, is is the story of, of the account of when uh, John the Baptist was arrested, and he sends some of the, his followers to ask Jesus if he really is the Messiah. It's a passage about suffering. Uh, it's a passage about doubt. It's about our expectations, and it's about the cost of following Jesus. So again, let's look at the verse. When, starting in, 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 in verse 18, we see this, this picture of, of what I think is suffering and doubt in the life of John. So it says in verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, this passage probably comes as a surprise to us, right? Um, because this is John the Baptist. If, if there was anybody that we had seen thus far in the scriptures who we thought would be on the same page about who Jesus is, uh, it would have been John. He is a man who is already faithfully walking with God, who certainly, we would expect anyway, was told of the experience of his mother Elizabeth when she, when she encountered the unborn Jesus in the womb of Mary and, and John in the womb of his mother Elizabeth leapt, um, at his presence. Um, this is the same John who heard the voice of God at the baptism of Jesus, right? And so if there's anybody who should know that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah who is to come, it should be John. But then what we see in this passage is that suddenly John seems to be unsure as to whether Jesus really is who John knows him to be. Now, why is that? Well, the answer is probably pretty obvious to, to most of it. It's just because he's in prison. His freedom uh, has been taken away. His very life is on the line. And in that moment, he doubts. I think we see other places in scripture that are similar to that, that story. We see, we see a similar kind of situation when Elijah is on the run from Jezebel after the Mount Carmel incident. And so when he is out in the wilderness, you know, he's, he's basically praying as if to say, God, are you even there? Do you even care? You know, here I am on the run. I'm the only one left. Um, and in that moment of trial, he has sort of this time of doubting as well. I think we could say it's pretty, probably pretty common that in a moment of suffering, uh, in the human experience, it is, it is, it is normal or common to question whether God is really there. In fact, if you think about it, that, that classic kind of question, why do bad things happen to good people? That's really a function of, of our unmet expectations, you could say. We expect God to have our lives run in a certain way. And then when he, when it doesn't go that way, we, we begin to doubt and ask if God is even there. Here's an observation. It's, it's certainly true in my life. I don't know if it's true in your life, but when I think about every person who is an atheist, who I've ever known well, that is people I was close to, people who I knew their story, I think every single one of them was an atheist for this very reason. It was not that they had thought through the philosophical or, or theological claims of the faith and rejected it. Instead, it was because either 
they had been hurt by the church or something tragic had occurred in their life. But either way, they were saying the same kind of thing to God. God, if you were real, if you were watching, if you cared, how could you have let this happen to me? And since it did happen, you must not be there. How could you have let my parent die? How could you have let my child suffer? How could you have let that abuse continue so long? And here's the deal. You may have answers to those questions in your head uh, right now that, that, that even comforts you, right? Um, you may have answers that if a friend came to you and they were questioning on, on some of these kind of issues, that you would have something um, that you would say to them, right? You would give them an answer, right? And that's, that's good. And I, and I, and I uh, expect that those things are helpful in your own, in your own faith, in your own walk. But, but I want you, I want to encourage you to, to be on guard because here's the deal. Even when we think we have answers for those things, our answers tend to slide out from under us when the difficulty is ours and not somebody else's. And if doubts can sneak up into John's life, who was, who was the best of men, the most faithful of followers, if they can sneak up into John's life, they can certainly find their way into your life and into mine. But Jesus has something to say to John and to us. And that is your experience, your feelings do not negate the objective reality of who Jesus is and what he has done before our eyes. So look at verse 21. So Luke writes, in that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. Jesus basically says, hey, look around. What do you see happening? The things that Jesus was doing, the miracles that he was performing, testified to the fact that he was the Messiah. In fact, each of the things he mentions, we can go back to passages in the book of Isaiah and see specific messianic connections that predict that the Messiah would do these things. In particular, Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61. Here's the problem. We are all tempted by this sometimes, right? We are tempted to let our experiences overshadow objective truth. We read the teachings of scripture. We believe them. We have faith. We tell other people about them, right? More to the point Jesus did these things. He's, he's not in a corner, but for all the world to see, um, he's doing these things that the Bible predicts. But then what happens is we go, yeah, but I'm going through a hard time. And I would have thought that God would have done something different. And the truth is we have to say, not in a hateful way, but, but, but we have to say, so what? So what if these things are happening to you? Does these things happening to you overshadow all the things that you have seen God do before? Do they overshadow the eyewitness testimony of scripture? Does your 
current suffering make those things untrue? I think we find that that's why the resurrection has been so compelling for so many people throughout history who were investigating the claims of the Christian faith. Right? Because something happened at the resurrection. Everybody believes that. Regardless of how you think or feel, something happened. The tomb is empty. And as people investigate that, they realize that, that, that the most likely, maybe even the only explanation for those events is that Jesus is raised from the dead. And so it doesn't really matter how I think or feel. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then all of a sudden that has to change the way I think and feel about these things. We cannot let our own disappointments, our own unmet expectations supersede the things we know to be true about God. Because we all know life is going to be hard sometimes. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes there aren't going to be any remedies. There aren't going to be any happy endings in this life, on this side of heaven. In fact, I think that's what Jesus is getting at in this passage with John. So watch this. So, so just like we said, the things that Jesus is referencing in, in that, that passage that we just read, the things that he says that take back to John in this message all come from the book of Isaiah. He's referencing these, these prophetic things from the book of Isaiah, but, but this isn't the first time that Jesus has quoted from the book of Isaiah in the gospel of Luke. Remember when Jesus was at the synagogue in Nazareth, just before he was rejected by his hometown folk, um, he quoted from the book of Isaiah as well. So look at Luke four real quick. Flip back to Luke chapter four, starting in verse 16. It says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and he was, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. It's one of the things he just referenced. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. That's something he just referenced. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus drives this point home with what he leaves out. Because again, this is John the Baptist, right? He is going to know, um, what, uh, he's going to know the scriptures pretty well. And as Jesus begins to say these things, he's going to start referencing back in his head to, to the, the prophecies of Isaiah. And so when Jesus says, you know, when, when I come, the, um, uh, blind are going to receive sight and he's going to say, yeah, that's, that's from the book of Isaiah and, and the lame are going to walk and the lepers are going to be cleansed and the deaf are going to hear and the dead are going to be raised up and the good, uh, the pre, the poor are going to have the good news preached to them. And, and John recognizes all these things and he also recognizes what's supposed to come next. Because in that passage from Isaiah, he says he's going to proclaim liberty to the captives and set at liberty those who are oppressed. But then Jesus doesn't say those things. Jesus leaves those sections out. What is Jesus saying? I think the message he's sending to John is, I am the Messiah. 
I have done all these things that prove that I am the Messiah. And you're going to die in prison. That's a hard teaching. That help isn't coming. Or at least not in the way that we want it to. Okay, so right, don't misunderstand me. God has not abandoned John. That is not what we're saying at all. In, in, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes that we just went through a couple of weeks ago, God promises special attention, special care, and special reward to those who are marginalized and hungry and sorrowful and persecuted. Okay, so in no way are we saying that God has abandoned John or, or God is not there in some way. The reality is that he isn't going to show up in the way that, that John wants him to or that we might want him to. Again, that's a hard teaching. But notice that Jesus doesn't apologize for that. In fact, he brings the question to us. He basically reverses it on us and asks, well, what did you expect was going to happen? So look at verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me. Who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Jesus says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? He's talking to the crowds there. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Referring to John the Baptist. He's using John as an example. But what he's really asking is this. He's asking, what did you expect the Christian life to be like? And he gives us two wrong answers to that. Two false expectations of the Christian life. First off, he says, did you expect to see a reed shaken by the wind? Right, so a, a reed is is blown this way and that. Every time every time the wind blows, it it bends over this way and it bends over that way. Is that what the Christian life is like? Every time life doesn't go your way, um, you get all wishy washy. Every time you are blown around by trials or the disappointments of life, you fall this way or that way. You doubt, you question, you you fall away. If I were to tell you that John the Baptist was the most hardcore, sold-out man of God in the history of the world, which is basically literally what it says about him in verse 28, right? It says uh, there's never been anybody greater than John. Of those born of woman, there's been never been anybody greater than John. Jesus is basically saying, would you expect to see that man pushed around by every wind of difficulty? I wouldn't. In the book of James, chapter 1, it talks about, it says, let the person ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Jesus is basically saying to John and basically saying to us, I don't want trials to push you around. I don't want trials to send you into fits of doubt about who I am. That's not the life I've called you to. 
The second wrong way, he says, did you go out into the, the desert and expect to see a man dressed in soft clothing? That is to say, did you expect this thing was going to be easy and profitable and comfortable? Do you expect a life of privilege and ease? Did you expect that because you joined the king's side, King Jesus' side, that you would live like earthly kings in luxury and comfort? Because if you want to live a life like that, you should probably look somewhere else, he's saying. Because the Christian life never promised you those things. In fact, they promised you the opposite. And so we may sympathize with those who fall away during a time of suffering. Because we understand how easy that would be to fall into that situation. But we also declare that that is not the life of faith. That is not what Jesus has called us to. It is not the perseverance and trust that characterizes the man of God. No, we declare with Job and with John that even if God were to slay me, I would still trust in him. That's why Jesus says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed, right? Happy in God are those who see the things Jesus has done. They know that he is the Messiah. And then they put away the expectations of this world and trust in God alone. But those people who are scandalized by Jesus because Jesus has not done the things that they wanted him to do or lived up to their preconceived expectations about how he should act. They won't be blessed. Those will be people who miss out on the blessing. And that's why Jesus closes and he says, I tell you, in verse 28, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus isn't looking for spiritual superstars. You don't have to be John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived. You don't have to be Elijah. You don't have to be Isaiah. Jesus is looking for people who keep the faith. He's just looking for people who persevere in trust regardless of the things that God allows in their life. He's just looking for simple Faithfulness. That's the life that God has called us to. And so while we sympathize with the doubt that comes from suffering, we know that we are called to something better. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.